Romans chapter 1, we'll begin reading at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of a corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Father, I ask for your help as I undertake to open verse 18 for our hearts and minds and lives and church and city and the nations. I ask that this not be a wasted half hour and that you would come by your Spirit and continue to give a kneeling posture to our hearts that we would bow before your authority and be changed by your holy revelation. So draw near now and give me an anointing for this work of preaching, I pray, and a special blessing of hearing upon your people. And should there be some here, as I am sure there are, who are unbelieving, I ask that they would be given the gift of careful listening and true understanding and right judgment and humble consideration and be drawn by the beauty of Christ and his gospel into saving faith. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to take a major turn now in our exposition of the book of Romans. The theme of the letter we've been on for six weeks in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. Namely, the power of God, which saves believers by revealing to them month after month and year after year what they so desperately need every day. Namely, the gift of righteousness offered freely to faith. And in verse 18, he begins a section about sin and judgment and wrath that will take him all the way to chapter 3, verse 21. Verses 18 to the end of chapter 1 is the condition of the Gentile world. Chapter 2, verse 1 to chapter 3, verse 8 is the condition of the Jewish world. And if you want to look at the summary of this unit in chapter 3, verse 9, it goes like this. What then? Are we Jews any better than they Gentiles? Answer, not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks, that's everybody, 
are all under sin. As it is written, here's the sweeping statement, there is none righteous, not even one. Now that's the point of chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 9. Sin and wrath and judgment and unrighteousness, the condition of humanity. And then in chapter 3, verse 21, after saying that the mouth of all the world has been stopped by this sin, he takes up the theme again from chapter 1, verse 17, and you read the words there in 321, but now, this is colossal now of the fullness of time when Jesus came, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. And that's the same as chapter 1, verse 17. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is being revealed. So between 117 and 321, you have this tour through the human heart. And it's not a pretty tour. And as I pondered the pace we've been going and the length of this unit, I thought that when I described it to you as a bleak place, some of you would groan thinking, oh no, we're going to be a year in sin. We're going to be a year in wrath and judgment. So, I've reflected on that as to whether that would be a bad thing. And uh, I have three answers to those of you who are worried about the oppressiveness of being a long time. I have any idea how long it's going to be. We'll see. In chapter 1, verse 18 to 320. Here's my encouragement to you. Number one, superficial diagnoses lead to false remedies and no cures. Superficial diagnoses lead to false remedies and no cures. Now, those are big words, kids. Listen, I'll, I'll tell you what it means. You're out playing and it's a, a gravel alley. And you're running full tilt and you fall and your hands and your knees go right into the gravel. You ever done this? And you look at your hands and especially the knee where the skin is so thin and it's all bloody and it's all dirty. It's got little rocks in there. And you go crying into the house and mommy looks at this or maybe daddy he's home and they say oh this is no problem let's just put a band-aid on that is that what they do it's not what they do because there's gravel in this thing and dirt and so they analyze it and they say we have to wash it with a washcloth and soap and rub it to get it out and that's bad news. That's oppressive. <laughs> Let's not spend too long here. 
But if they don't get this right, if they don't get the diagnosis right, you're going to get an infected knee with an ugly scar and maybe a fever. And so they get it right. They wash. You cry. Then goes the Band-Aid and you get well. Right diagnoses produce right cures. People who care about overcoming AIDS or cancer spend most of their time looking at AIDS and cancer. So my first encouragement is however long we take, view it as a way of learning to diagnose the true condition of the human heart and the true nature of God in response to it. Here's my second encouragement. Profound understanding of sin and wrath will make you a wiser person, will give you a far deeper understanding of human nature, your own nature, and other people's nature. It will help you fight your own sin better and make you a wiser helper of other people dealing with their own human nature. If you don't know human nature, you'll be of very little use to humans. For a couple of years, I've been throwing out from time to time a goal that I have for the church in the word sage. Raise your hand if you've heard me use that word. Okay, not many. Remember it. So I've been throwing it out enough. I want us to be, through Sunday school, Wednesday night efforts, track one TBI, small groups, preaching, worship. I want us to become a church in which we nurture and cultivate sages, sagacious people. That is, people who are wise, discerning, penetrating, people-loving, heart-knowing, God-exalting sages. I've put it like this. All of you 20, 30, 40-year-old people should think, and I'm thinking of women and men, I've said it especially to some of you women. Some women wonder, what is my, what's my vision for my life spiritually as I grow older? Single, say, or married. And here's one vision, here's one way to articulate to yourself why you're on planet Earth. Think of becoming a 60-year-old sage to which hundreds of young women in their 20s and 30s and 40s will come streaming because you penetrate. You see things. You understand things. You grasp things. You know nature. You know God. You know the heart. You know sin. You know ugliness. You know beauty. You know wrath. You know holiness. You know mercy. You know things. You've been into the human heart and worked around there and understood it and untangled the sanctity and the sin of the human nature. And people read all over you the aroma of wisdom. And I just think the only reason that doesn't happen more often than it does is that we don't pray toward it, think toward it, work toward it, read toward it, listen toward it, act toward it, relate toward it. We just coast. So, long after I'm off the scene, may some people in this room right now be remembering, remember 20, 30 years ago when Pastor John 
Piper was here and he called us to be sages. There's one. And there's one. And there's one. And there's one. The men and women in their 60s and 70s and 80s to whom people go because every time they go, there's a fountain of life. The lips of wisdom are a fountain of life. Who drinks at your life? You are meant to be that. You are on the earth to become that way. And so many of you have low views of what you're going to be when you're older. Stop having low views. The Bible is written to make you wise unto salvation and not just your own. All of which, on this second introductory point, is simply to tell you that to linger in the presence of an authoritative analysis of the human condition for some months is not an unhelpful thing to do if you want to produce sagacious, wise, penetrating, loving counselors to whom people go and get great help. Third encouragement. This one comes from the uh, structure of verse 18 itself. Verse 18 of chapter 1, which begins this whole section on sin, is given as a support for the gospel. You see the word for or because at the beginning of verse 18? If you have an NIV, you don't see it because they dropped it. Shame on them. Don't know why they do that sort of thing, but if you have an NASB or RSV or King James or one of the more literal renderings, you will see the word for or because at the beginning of verse 18, and it is absolutely essential for understanding the flow of the apostolic argument. The gospel is power because in it righteousness is revealed for you to have by faith. It's God's, not yours. So that you can have peace in your conscience, acceptance with God, hope for everlasting life. And you need that because the wrath of God is against your sin mightily. Get the connection? Which means that if you understand wrath and you understand sin and, and ungodliness and unrighteousness, you will desperately look for the gospel. You will want a shield from that wrath more than you want anything in the world. And it's there in verse 17. We're coming back to it every Sunday. So if you wonder, are we going to leave the gospel behind and only talk about the problem for several months? The answer is no. Because the only reason Paul talks about the problem is to make you love the gospel. And if you try to do an end run around this section and jump boing, from 17 to 321, you won't love the gospel. That's being taught all over the world today in the name of Christianity. Let's just jump over this sin stuff. Let's just jump over this wrath stuff. This is not encouraging. It is not going to make people want to come back to my church on Sunday morning. I don't believe that, by the way. Visitors, whoever you are, 
Frankly, I think you'd like an interpretation of uh, death and suffering and moral degeneracy in our society. I think the world is kind of interested in where death come from. And is there any hope to overcome it? So I'm not worried about talking about sin and chasing anybody away. People leave for all kinds of reasons. And people come for the most strange reasons you can ever imagine. God brings you here this morning for this message. You're here for this message. And I pray that you'll be listening. So, number one, we want good cures. Number two, we want wise people. And number three, we want to love the gospel. And for those three reasons, I'm not afraid to linger in this text that takes us very deep into our own misery and our own human nature and God's holiness and God's wrath. Now, let's begin the section, verse 18. Because or for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The first thing I want you to see in that verse is the two uses of the word unrighteousness. Twice, twice. Wrath is coming against our unrighteousness. And we are holding down or suppressing or hindering the truth in unrighteousness. Surely, Paul, in writing those two words, unrighteousness, means for us to connect them with the word righteousness in verse 17. And here that the reason we need a righteousness from God is because we are unrighteous. That's what he wants us to hear in these words. So don't miss that connection. In other words, you can see right off the bat that the bad news of verse 18 is meant to highlight the good news of verse 17. And if you don't get your condition as unrighteous, you won't love the awesome reckoning of verse 17. So don't run from these things. Don't run from the diagnosis. Next thing I want you to see is the word revealed, which also parallels the word revealed in verse 17. And what's especially crucial to see about it is the present tense continuing action. Verse 17, I stressed very much, the righteousness of God is being revealed from faith to faith. Day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, year after year, for the saints as they look to the gospel of God, the righteousness of God for them in Christ is being revealed to them and establishing them and strengthening them and producing more faith in them and preserving them so that they will escape wrath in the future. And now comes this frightening word in verse 18 that the same tense, same continuous action, same word revealed applies to wrath. For the wrath of God is being revealed. Not just will be revealed. That's true. Chapter 5, verse 9. Chapter 2, verse 5. There's a day of wrath coming. But this text says, it is now being revealed from heaven. It's coming down. It's being demonstrated. It's being manifested on the world. And mainly today, what I want to do is answer the question, how is it? Where do you see it? In your life, do you see it? In your family, do you see it? 
In our nation do we see it? Where is it? Now, there are more than three answers to this, but I will take time to give you three answers to the question, how is the wrath of God now, today, being revealed? Number one, it is being revealed in the universal human experience of death. Death is an expression of God's wrath against ungodliness and unrighteousness. Now, to show you where I get that, turn with me to chapter 5. We will linger a long time, I am sure, over verses 12 to 18 of chapter 5, but now we will simply get the main point. Look in the middle of verse 15 of chapter 5. By the transgression of the one, that's Adam, the one parent that we have, by the transgression of the one, the many died. Death was a response given by God to Adam's sin. So we in Adam sinned and fell and death spread then to all. Now look at the middle of verse 16 to see how this death is described. For on the one hand, the judgment, underline that word, arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. So there you have two words describing death, judgment and condemnation. So death is not some kind of mere physical experience because cells wear out. Death is judgment. Death is condemnation. Now look at verse 18 in the middle. Through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. So three times, death is called a judgment or a condemnation or a response to sin. Another word for that is wrath. Death is an expression or a manifestation of the anger and the wrath of God against sin in the world. Questions are arising in your mind. Good, good, good. Hold them. The key one may be answered before we're done. Answer number two. Futility in misery and suffering is an expression of the wrath of God. Go with me to chapter 8 to see this one. Chapter 8, beginning at verse 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time, that means this age, till the kingdom is established, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility. Stop. The creation was subjected to futility. What's that? Who did that? What's the futility? 
I think the futility is the suffering referred to in verse 18. And the apparent pointlessness of it all. You work hard. You give to the church. You set aside a little bit for retirement, each paycheck. You have a dream for how it might be spent fruitfully for God in a different way than your present job. And the day after your retirement party, you have a stroke. And you don't speak again. And your face aches. And your whole dream is futile. You work hard, you build with your own hands a little house, debt-free, and the week before you move in, lightning hits the house and burns it to the ground. And if it's really a bad day, it was between insurance policies. You labor as a farmer, southern Sudan, Texas, China, to plant. You're supposed to do that. And about when the grain is to give seed, flood takes it all away. Or drought. Futile. Life is so futile. Everywhere you look, you try hard, you work hard, you plan well, and it gets blown away. Read on. The creation was subjected to futility. Now, where'd this come from? Not willingly. Nobody asked for that. But because of him... Who subjected it, who's that? In hope. Who can do that? You got three candidates here. Adam, and he brought the curse on us, right? It's Adam. Adam did it. Or second candidate, Satan. Adam suggests Satan. Actually suggested Eve and she suggested Satan. Satan. He did it. He subjected the world to futility. No, it's neither of those. God did it because only God can do it in hope. Adam didn't sin to produce hope for the human race. Satan didn't tempt to produce hope for the human race. God cursed the ground and the creation and then said, and very soon the seed of the woman is going to crush his head. And there will be triumph for the seed and all who are in him. Hope is built right into the curse and only God builds hope into curses. This is the wrath of God on the world when hurricanes come, when floods come, when lightning strikes. This is the wrath of God upon the world. Suffering in this fallen world echoes the hatred of God for sin. 
Third answer. Questions are arising in your mind. Good. The third answer is in the immediate context of chapter 1. It's the one on Paul's mind most immediately. The wrath of God is being poured out in human degradation. Human degradation. Look at chapter 1, verse 24. He finishes talking about idolatry and sin there in his introductory paragraph, and now he launches into some specifics. And he says in verse 24 of chapter 1, Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among themselves. He gave them over to degeneracy. Look at verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over to a degrading passion. That's where I get the word degradation. Look at verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. The third answer how is wrath being demonstrated in the world? It is being demonstrated as God gives people up to their depraved preferences. So that, for example, perhaps if they endorse and legally defend infanticide because the baby is three inches still in the womb, God might give them over to uncontrollable, illicit sexual desire. So in sum, the wrath of God is being poured out on the world through consigning all to death and subjecting all to futility and giving many over to utter degradation. So, here's a question. I wonder if you've been asking this one. Is that all? Is that the only way God responds to unbelievers and the world and believers in their sin? Now, we've already seen the answer to that. We've lingered over it for six weeks. No. There is gospel. God moves. He is on the move to rescue people from his wrath now, as well as in the future, by the gospel. So what? let's just take the case of unbelievers for a moment. Do unbelievers who do not believe the gospel, is that all they get is wrath? Look at chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Clear as bell what the answer is to this question. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? Those are big words, folks. This is addressed to unbelievers. Do you, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But 
Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Listen, God is never doing only one thing. He's always doing several things. Things that often you can't, in your little mind or mine, begin to put together. But I declare it as a biblical truth throughout that wherever judgment is pouring out in this age, kindness is being poured out simultaneously in this age. God warns us with his wrath and he woos us with his kindness. There's a little image of this. Maybe this image will help you. And, and it, it, it's a children's thing in the way Jesus does it. I don't know if you remember when he's talking about John the Baptist. There's a reason why John the Baptist came his way and Jesus came his way. John the Baptist came how? He ate grasshoppers. He wore leather clothes. He lived in the desert. He fasted. He called kings names. He was mean on the outside. He was tough. Jesus came making wine at weddings, going to Pharisees' parties, healing people, bouncing children on his knees, healing and blessing. And Jesus said one time, we piped to you and you would not dance. We played a dirge, and you would not cry. You called John demonic, and you called me a glutton. But wisdom is vindicated by her children. God is always speaking both languages in your life. Unbeliever, listen. Listen to your pain. And listen to that sunshine. Jesus said the sun rises on the good and the evil. Rains fall on the just and the unjust. Screaming the patience of God with this wicked age that disbelieves day in and day out. Giving God two seconds worth of their attention. He gives them life. He gives them food. He gives them refrigeration. He gives them air conditioning. He gives them running water. He gives them cars. He gives them schools. He gives them a clear mind. He gives them hands. He gives them legs. He gives them ears to hear. And he does it year after year. Of course they get sick. And then they're in God's face. Listen. Listen to the pain. And listen to the pleasure of your life. God speaks both languages. Wrath and mercy are falling on you right now. In this word. And you, by your response, can make it all mercy. Let's just close by talking about the people that do that. What about believers? We buried Patty. Did God, was God mad at Patty? God take Patty's life because she's a sinner. We suffer. A lot of people in this room right now suffering. 
relational suffering, physical suffering, mental suffering. So many things in your lives futile. Nothing's working. Nothing works and you're going to stub your toe on the way out today. The car's going to be locked with the keys inside and the motor running. I did that the other day. Everything goes wrong. I'm a Christian. So he's mad at me. You told me. You said so. You said this is wrath. And sin... Death, you got suffering, you got sin. I sin. I had to repent yesterday. Somebody called me to account. I had to repent. So I'm under the wrath of God. Right? Well, here's a very brief concluding answer to those three questions. Here's the secret. Now you gotta get this. I'm telling you. See, when I stand back from this message and this text and and Romans, I just get my breath taken away. We're talking this morning about mega worldview issues. I mean, if you believe the things I'm saying here about death and suffering and sin and where it comes from and how it relates to believer and unbeliever and how it's rooted in the beginning and how it relates to the end of history, I mean... Do you think this is small? This is incredible. I'm trying to remake your whole worldview. If you think this way about reality, you're going to be a sage someday. If you blow this off this morning and say, interesting, are the Vikings playing today? Oh no, they, they played last whatever, you know. If that's the way you deal with truth, nobody will come to you Oh, grow. Oh, grow. All right, here's my answer. When you believe the gospel of chapter 1, verse 17, and you receive by faith an imputed gift of righteousness, not your own, but God's, death changes, suffering changes, sin changes. And I'll just mention how they change. Death, where is thy victory? Oh, death, where is thy sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory over death through Jesus Christ our Lord. So here's the answer about death. Death for the Christian is not taken away. God saves us in stages. He could have done it another way. As soon as you were saved, he could have plucked you out of the earth, put you in heaven, avoided death and everything else. He could have done it that way. He's chosen to do it in stages. So the first stage is this wonderful peace with God in the gospel. And as you approach death, he pulls the stinger on it. The bee is alive. He pulls a stinger on it. It moves in on you like a defeated enemy, as Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians 15, a defeated enemy who now unwittingly is made to serve you by opening a door into paradise. 
So yes, it's still in the world, but God, by His grace in the gospel, takes wrath and turns it into a ministry of paradise opening. Secondly, futility and suffering. The answer is given in the same text where the problem was raised. If you keep reading, Romans 8, 28 says, For those who love God and are called according to His purpose... All things work together for good. Now, let me say that another way. There is no such thing as futility in the Christian life. Period. Lightning strikes. It is not futile. Stroke will come. Visit me, please. Pray for me. It will come. This, this articulate, loudmouth preacher will be a very sad case someday. He will not be pretty to look at. It will come, but not futility. It will not be in vain. And sin? Let's go to the third one. Sin. What's that? Sin no longer for the Christian is a place from which you sink lower and lower and lower into degradation, but a place where you meet a dethroned enemy in the power of the Holy Spirit. And you fight, not in your own strength, but in His strength doesn't go away. He who says, I have no sin, is a liar. 1 John 1, 10. It's not going to go away out of your life. Not in this age. But the fight comes. He doesn't give you over to a depraved mind. He gives you to the Holy Spirit. And by the power of the Holy Spirit now, you fight this thing and some days you lose and some days you win. But the mark of the believer is you get up fighting. That's the mark of the believer. No perfection in this age, I don't believe, but a lot of good fighting. Those are my three answers to how you now, believer, experience the transformed wrath. He doesn't take it all away overnight. The shell, as it were, of wrath is there, doing a lot of pain in your life. But it's gutted of animosity. It's gutted of condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, even when they get the stroke, even when the lightning strikes, even when they fall into sin like Peter did in his denial. There is no condemnation. This is not a condemning wrath of God. Destructive forces in the Godhead have become disciplinary forces in the Father. If you'll have it, if you will love God and express the truth that you have been called by Him. So, the conclusion is, flee the wrath of God. Flee, believer and unbeliever. Flee the wrath of God. Where to? Verse 17. 
We're going to come back. It's going to end every sermon for the next who knows how many months. Go into verse 17 and clothe yourself by faith, not works, with the righteousness of a holy God who has not only poured out wrath on the world, but is moving in that wrath to save people from it with his asbestos righteousness. Clothe yourselves with it by faith. Live in it, love it, cherish it. And as you walk out of here today, click your heels with gladness that come what may, there is no futility. And tell somebody that they can have that. Let's pray. Oh God, oh God, would you perform that here now? Would you save those who came in unbelieving, save them by just drawing their faith into Jesus. Wrap your arms around them and may they be the arms of righteousness to protect them from your wrath. And may every believer in this room savor the gospel if they've never savored it before. And would you give us a world view, oh God, by which we understand Washington, we understand Sudan, we understand China, we understand our own soul's gravity moving towards sin over and over apart from grace. Oh, make sages of us, Lord, that we might be useful in this world. Just stand with me for a benediction. The Lord bless you, all of you, with this truth. The Lord open your eyes to the wrath of God, not to make you fearful, but to make you love the gospel. And may the Lord open your eyes to the beauty of the righteousness of God granted to you by faith. And may you walk out of here at peace with God. And if you can't, just sit down and deal with him for a few more minutes. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.